Good morning. You might notice that there's a lot of children in the room today. Uh, nine Sundays a year, uh, we have all of our children kind of in the, the congregation with us uh, to give uh, rest to our uh, children workers in the back. Um, there is a resource that I just want to make you aware of if you don't know. Um, in our uh, Church Center app, under Remedy Members Group, under Resources, you'll find something that's called Remedy Kids Quick Tips. And it's a resource designed for the members on how to receive children in the service, right? It's, a, it's an, admon, uh, an admonition, to, ad, admonition? admonition to uh, parents to be at peace. And it's an admonition to members uh, to be patient. Um, so just look at there. That, that's a resource that's available to you. I highly encourage you to look at it because, nine, again, nine times a year we'll have our kids, all of them, uh, in the congregation. Let, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Galatians. Father, uh, you are beautiful. We are not based on it. We are right before you, not based on our own merits and works and thoughts and feelings, but we are right before you because of Christ, because of his thoughts, his works, his life, his feelings, his person. We pray that you would put this Christ before us today, that you would reaffirm our hearts again of the great truth that not only do we begin right before you because of faith in Christ alone, but we continue and grow in our righteousness as we trust in Christ and him alone. Lord, I pray that you would make justification an extremely practical and intimate teaching to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so last week, uh, Pastor David preached the very heart of the letter of Galatians. Um, so if you, if you uh, have not gotten a chance to listen to that, I recommend that you go on YouTube and find it. Uh, what is the heart, you might be asking? What is the... Every beat of that heart, what is the big idea? What is the melodic line, fancy way of saying it, the big idea of Galatians? In short, it's justification by faith alone. If you wanted to make it a little bit longer, it's justification by faith alone because of Christ crucified. This is the main point, the heartbeat of the letter of Galatians. This doctrine, justification by faith alone, is important enough that it caused Paul, a relatively unknown Christian at the time, or really he was well-known, but he was well-known for destroying the church at the time. It made this Paul confront the Apostle Peter to his face before others when he saw that his actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. So think about that. It was important enough for Paul to confront the guy who walked with Christ for three years, the guy who was uh, who de denied Christ three times, the guy who was restored by Christ three more times, who was a part of Christ's inner three. He was one of the three pillars of the church at Jerusalem. That guy was confronted by Paul because justification by faith alone was at stake. 
That's how important this doctrine was. Why is justification by faith alone so important? There's a, a phrase that's often attributed to Martin Luther. Uh, if you do a little quick historical sketch, can't find anywhere where he says it word for word, but people said it for him, and they called it a proverb of Luther by the early 1600s. And this is kind of the phrase that rings true, I think, from our letter today. The phrase goes like this, justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. Now, we kind of might hear that and go, wow, that's poetic, but it doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty, dark, practical, everyday doings and, and actions of human beings. We might say, well, what, what does that mean to us? When we hear the word the church, we might be thinking already kind of abstractly of that invisible thing that's out there, right? So let's show it. We might be telling remedy church stands or falls. Now, we might be tempted to already be thinking about remedy church abstractly and kind of organizationally. So do this. It is the article by which Chris stands or falls. Andy stands or falls. Carice stands or falls. Scott stands or falls. Look around and put everybody's name into that statement. Justification by faith is that article by which you stand or fall. So I wanted to give uh, an example that I think is recent. We had a members meeting last Sunday uh, in which I would uh, summarize as a lot of emotion was shown by both the elders and various members during uh, the members meeting attending. And kind of this is my read of the situation. Uh, some came away kind of indifferent to the meeting. Oh, that's, you know, it's normal, you know. People are emotional. That's, that's a thing. Um, some came away maybe thinking, this was really good. People were able to share their hearts, right? And then some might have been coming away from it saying, I'm really hurt by this. This hurt my feelings, right? This hurt me. And the temptation for those of us who thought the transaction to be healthy and good is to look at the others and say, get with it. This is our hearts. You need to know me. Move on. Come on. Come along with us, right? And then the temptation of the other side, right, is perhaps uh, that this is a waste of time or this, this shouldn't even happen or worse, this is stirring up division. I don't want to hang out with that person anymore because they're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as the, as the kind of serial goes, right? So let me address this kind of directly because I think this is just, a, it's just one of the ways that justification is extremely practical to us, right? Let me address the truth of the gospel and then a follow-up question. The truth of the gospel is if you trust Christ, God has declared you to be right before him, a son or a daughter perfectly righteous in his countenance, in his presence. And then the question is, if Christ's cross is good enough for me and Christ's cross is good enough for fill-in-the-blank name of your neighbor, is it good enough to make them right before me? So let me say that again. If God makes me right before himself by the cross, does God make my neighbor right before me because of the cross? Do you see how justification, it, it, it speaks to how we treat one another, right? If we treat one another on the basis of our own merits and works, 
we will inevitably disappoint one another. But if we understand that the atoning blood of Christ has covered my brother, right, we can receive them. We can call them out in their sin. They can call us out in our sin. We can forgive them. They can forgive us because Christ has done all those things for us in the cross of Christ. So let's look at these truths. This is what the letter of Galatians is all about, and this is particularly what Galatians 3, 1 through 13 is talking about today. And I, I, I want to make a few notes of the text before we actually dive in to the, to the words of it. Um, first, look at verses 1 and look at verses 13. So that's right at the beginning and the end of our text. Jesus begins, or sorry, Paul begins and ends this passage with Jesus' death on the cross. The second thing to look at is look at verse 2 and 14. Paul starts and ends with our reception of the Spirit. So the cross of Christ and the people of God receiving God's Spirit are at the beginning and the end of our passage today. And Paul's going to interlink those things. Another quick thing is we're now entering in a, into a time of Galatians where Paul is now going to defend the heart. So Pastor David preached the heart, and now Paul's going to defend the heart. Here's justification by faith, and now Paul's going to give several defenses in chapter 3 and chapter 4 for justification by faith. He's going to give defenses based on the Galatians' experience. He's going to give defenses based on the Old Testament, and he's going to give defenses based on just logic and, and various metaphors that he's going to use. So in, our, in today, our text... We're going to see a defense from experience and several defenses from Scripture. And we're going to break this into three kind of points. Experience. Point one, Paul's going to defend justification from the Galatians' experience. Point two, he's going to give a defense for justification that it's God's original plan and it's for everyone. And then point three, he's going to show you how the cross of Christ brings it about. So let's look at our first point. This is coming from verses 1 through 5. The experience of conversion, spiritual conversion and growth, is by faith alone. So we are converted, we are brought to God by faith alone, and we continue to grow by faith alone. Nothing else is added to that, uh, that formula. So Paul writes this in verses 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you faith? End quote. So Paul turns from the truth of the gospel from, from last week's text, and he opens up this week with a zinger, right? Look at the first words. Oh, foolish Galatians. That's never what you'll want to hear from anybody, probably, right? Oh, foolish, put in your name, right? That's not a, a good start to the thing. And to kind of make this a little bit more apparent, Paul in Greek does something. He puts it all of these words in what's known as the vocative case, which indicates direct discourse. But when he adds a little article, this, you know, this word O, it makes it direct discourse with a kind of emote. He's literally 
slapping his head. Oh, foolish Galatians. What are you doing? Yeah, that was pretty good, wasn't it? It's a pretty good slap. I need to go get tested after that. So, so you might be like, hey, Greek, 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 great. Look in your English Bible. You can see it in the English, and I want to show you this. So in the first two, uh, in the first three words, you'll see O. Anytime you see the word O, particularly in the New Testament, it's likely evocative case, right? And it's kind of dramatic, right? Oh, right? So that's indicating evocative case. But also look after Galatians, you'll see the exclamation mark. Those two factors are indicating to you in English. This is Paul showing lots of emotion to the Galatians. He is saying, oh, foolish Galatians. He's bewildered. Now he continues this emotional bewilderment by asking, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, bewitched quite literally means who has placed an evil eye on you, which he's invoking this kind of supernatural idea that the ancient Romans and ancient Greeks had where someone could literally give you a certain kind of stare and it would put a spell on you, right? Now, he's not saying, hey, that's real. He's invoking that because he's, he's doing a play on words because the very next thing he says, right, is was it not before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And so it carries with it the effect of what has anyone said to you that has caused you to take your eyes off of the crucified Savior and put it on anything else? What are we doing here, O oh, foolish Galatian? So what, what does Paul mean here in this phrase, was publicly portrayed as crucified before the very eyes of the Galatians? What does he mean there? Because the Galatians were not eyewitnesses of the death of Christ. And, and Paul wasn't an eyewitness of the death of Christ, but here he seems to be saying, it was before your eyes that Jesus was crucified. So, so what exactly is Paul saying here? Most naturally, what Paul means here is that through his or perhaps others preaching of Christ, their eyes were brought and opened to Christ. So that's, that's kind of the most natural meaning. But on top of this, the word can also mean who was written before your very eyes. And so it, it could also mean that Paul's about to spend the next few chapters demonstrating Christ from the Old Testament. And so Paul might be fully saying here, I preached Christ from the scriptures, particularly in this time, the Old Testament. He was before your eyes crucified from these scriptures. Shows us the importance of the Old Testament. So again, this does twofold for us. It shows us the importance of the Old Testament, but it also likely indicates that the false teachers are also teaching from the Old Testament. And Paul wants to kind of set those things aside. So particularly, they're likely teaching from the Law of Moses. Um, and this is indicated, again, you can look at, go back to last week's text, chapter 2, verse 16. You're justified by faith alone not by works of the law. That's referring to the Mosaic law. Look at our text today, verse 2, verse 5. We see works of the law again. And so clearly these teachers have been kind of intermixing Moses um, into this uh, false teaching. So before moving on to verse 2, there's one other thing from verse 1 that I think is helpful. Um, commentator Timothy George brought this home to me. He pointed out that the who 
of who has bewitched is singular. It's not plural. And so his, his comment was basically along the lines of, well, Paul, behind these false teachers, plural, sees a singular entity or enemy, right, who's trying to take their eyes off the cross. So Timothy George writes this. This verse is a solemn warning to every congregation that gathers for worship and every preacher who stands behind a sacred desk or this thing uh, to proclaim God's word, however large or small the congregation, however powerful or ineffective the preacher, a contest of eternal moment is being waged with the souls of men and women in the balance. Paul preached Christ crucified and it opened the Galatians' eyes to receive salvation. And in the same way, these false teachers preach something other than Christ and it's closing their eyes to the cross. There's importance when, whether formally or informally, we look at the word of God, there's importance to make sure that we realize that an eternal moment is, is taking place, a battle, a spiritual battle. So Paul continues in verses 2 through 5 by asking some rhetorical questions. And his aim is to get the Galatians to review their conversation and experience and further experiences in growing in Christ. So verse 2, he says this. Did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith or by works of the law? Now, quick word on hearing with faith. It's a bit awkward of a phrase. Look at verse 5. It shows up again. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The reason it's awkward is, is in verse 5, it's God. The, he's the one that's operating. In, in verse 2, it's us. We're the one operating. But it's weird to say God operates by the hearing of faith, right? Because God's not hearing with faith. Well, here's, here's why it's a little bit awkward. The phrase itself actually just means that which is heard. So when we say hearing with faith, it's that which is heard by faith. And so uh, the New Testament uses this very same word. Sometimes it translates it as fame, news, report, right? Romans 10, Paul actually has a kind of parallel usage of this word. Romans 10 clarifies what Paul means here. He says this in verses 14 and on. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? There's our word. And how are they to hear how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And so quite literally, hearing with faith means message of faith or that which is heard by faith. And so how is God operating amongst us? It's through the message of faith. How are we receiving the righteousness before God? It's through the message of faith, by trusting in that thing which we hear. Um, so, so that's why it seems a little bit of awkward. And so the questions here should have the effect of this on the Galatians thinking and saying to themselves. They should be looking back in time and they should say, well, we did receive the Spirit by believing this message that was preached by Paul. And God did continue to work among us through this message that was preached by Paul about Christ. And this gets to the heart of verse 3's question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
if you received the Spirit by faith, if you saw God work amongst you by faith, why now are you turning to something else to continue to grow? That's kind of the effect that he's going. Uh, Garrett began to give me a pretty painful analogy of this that I thought was helpful. Um, it's like you begin to hammer, you know, God gives you the spiritual hammer of justification. And you're starting to use that tool to, you know, put nails into a piece of wood. And then at some point in time, you decide, I'll put the tool down, I'm going to start using my hand, right? Ow. That's what the Galatians are doing. They started by just simply trusting in Christ. And it's like a hammer. It's just working. They're growing like crazy. And then they decided at some point in time to put the tool down and to start doing it on their own flesh, using their own strength, using their own merits and works. So you'll notice on the point up on the screen, you'll find the word experience. Um, I, I put that word in the point because I think it's a word in the text. The term experience is used intentional. So look at verse 4. Paul writes, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Look at the word suffer, and in the ESV, you'll notice a footnote. Follow the footnote down to the bottom of the page, and you'll see suffer sometimes can mean experience, right? Now, normally this word means suffer throughout the New Testament context, but favorite word, methinks, here, it means suffer. That's actually an English word, methinks. Um, write that down. You need to use it. Um, now, here's why I think it's experience and not suffer, right? There's no mention of the Galatians suffering anywhere in the letter, except for if this is the place. And then the second reason, if you look at our direct context, Paul's talking about them being justified by faith and growing by faith. And so he's, talk, he's making appeal not to their suffering, but to their experience, their experience of growth in Christ. And he's making that appeal. And so we should read it this way, if, if the ESV footnote is to be preferred, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by trusting in the gospel of Christ? Having begun your journey with Christ by, Spirit, by the Spirit, are you now completing your journey by the flesh? Did you experience these things in vain, if indeed these things are in vain? So essentially, I know it's hard. By abandoning Christ and attempting to gain personal growth through works of the law, you, th you, threaten, uh, you threaten to make your experience of Christ and the Spirit all for naught. So this is Paul's way of saying the proverb of Luther. On this article, you, dear Galatians, stand, grow, and receive the Spirit, or fall, wither, and experience the grace of Christ in vain. Now, there's hope. There's a little bit of hope. He writes this. He, he doesn't just end there. He says, if indeed it was in vain. And that's Paul winking to the Galatians and winking to us through the Galatians that nothing God does is in vain. If God truly gave the Spirit and started growing them in Christ, God will continue to give the Spirit and continue to grow them in Christ. Um, so let's look at our second point. This is justification by faith, is Abrahamic, and is for everyone. So Paul's going to turn from an experiential defense, and he's going to turn to a scriptural defense. So now we've talked about your experience. Now let's root your experience in scripture and show that your experience actually was good. Um, so justification by faith is Abrahamic, 
and is for everyone. Paul writes this in verses righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, end quote. And so the passage starts with just as, which connects right back to verse 5. He's not making an entirely separate point. He started with experience and he's moving right into scripture. He shows that Paul's appeal to the Galatians' experience is connected to what has followed, and it is a mic drop. He basically says, hey, you Gentile Christians who received Christ by faith and were declared right before God, you did just like Abraham. Just like Abraham. You might have heard of that guy, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit conflicted here. I think we have children in the service. Does anybody want to sing Father Abraham? Raise your hand if you want to sing Father Abraham. All right, we got, we got, we got, you got to sing it though because I'm bad at singing. All right, you ready? We're going to sing one verse. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. And you are you, so let's talk to the Lord. I don't even know the words. <laughs> All right, good job. Now, kids, that is one of the most true songs ever written. Do you know how you become a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham? Trust in Christ. That's it. Trust in Christ. And Paul's point here is to assure that the Galatians' Gentile faith is the very same faith that Abraham had, father of the nations and father of the Jews. Their experience of being received by God is the very experience Abraham had. Paul affirms this Abrahamic connection to justification by appealing to two passages of Scripture. The first one is Genesis 15:6, and the second one is Genesis 12:3, with a little mixture of Genesis 18:18. So the first one, in Genesis 15, God promises again to Abraham, one of your sons, biological children, will be the heir, right? He makes that promise. Because Abraham at this point is pretty old. Sarah's pretty old. They don't have a child. And Abraham thinks that one of his servants is basically going to be the heir of all of his possessions. And God says, no, Abraham, you will have a son. And that's the son who will be the heir. Right? So he promises. And then in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. God worked in Abraham according to faith, not according to Abraham's works of the law, which didn't exist yet, or works for anything else. There was no law, and Abraham was not circumcised at this point, and yet he was counted righteous. Paul then turns in verse 7 and applies it straight to the Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Again, concluding the mic drop. And your experience is the same as Abraham's experience. You are the sons of Abraham if you keep on being the sons of faith. 
The irony is the false teachers are trying to get them to do some more Jewish things, to obey the law of Moses or to be circumcised, to add things to the gospel. And Paul in turn is saying, the more you do those things, the less you are like the father of the Jews, Abraham, because he was justified by faith. Now, Jesus, in case you're worried that I'm going a little too hard on the Abraham point, Jesus made these kinds of distinctions as well. He once called the Pharisees the children of the devil instead of the children of Abraham. This is in John 8, 39 and following, and we'll return to that a little bit later. So now we need to anticipate a potential objection. Paul, Abraham trusted God's promise of blessing and offspring, not Christ. So it's not the same thing. Paul now makes his appeal in Genesis 12, 3, in the call of Abraham, and he says this, in scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So much to talk about here, but let's just start here. First, note, scripture's personified. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's an interesting thing. I think that's Paul just basically making another case that Scripture is God's words. Scripture had the forethought to see that these things were true and that it would apply all the way down the line to the Galatian church themselves. So there's, there's, there's a nugget right there. But note this second one, which I find to be even more crazy. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Wait a minute. Abraham heard the gospel of Christ. Remember Jesus calling the Pharisees children of the devil and not children of Abraham, John 8. You know what else Jesus says a little bit later in that same chapter in John 8, 56? He says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, it's as commentator M.J. Edwards said of the Galatians. He said this of the Galatians in their, in their faith. He says this, he is, Paul is illustrating the power of faith, which is able to see even things far off. And he said, not crucified, but portrayed as crucified, showing that with the eyes of faith, they saw more accurately than those who were there and witnessed the events, end quote. Now, just like the faith of the Galatians allowed them to see Christ more accurately than the eyewitnesses themselves. Faith allowed Abraham to see forward into the day of Christ accurately and trust, rejoice, and be glad. Abraham's faith allowed him to see Jesus' day and be glad. This is what Paul means by the gospel was preached to Abraham through Genesis 12, 3. Let's ask this question, because this is important for the context of Genesis. How is the curse reversed? How is the curse reversed and blessing brought to the world? It's through Christ Jesus, the son of Abraham. We all, we all believe that. And the scripture preached Christ concealed in the Old Testament, but Christ nonetheless. And now the Galatians can see Christ revealed, and it's the same Christ that Abraham trusted in. And Paul then concludes in verse 9, so then, faith. We drink from the same well that Abraham drank from. I think that's the, the grammar. And in the same way, so don't stop. 
don't change your strategy. That's Paul's point. Don't stop believing. I think that's a song or something. The promise of blessing given to Abraham in Genesis 12 was for all the families of the earth. And so it would be shameful for me not to include something about missions here. Note, in Genesis 12, that's not very far in the Bible, we find at the heart of God's plan to reverse the curse, all families of the earth. Not just one family there, all families of the earth. And so from the get-go, God has had the nations on his heart. And from the get-go, the way that God brings the nations back to himself is through justification by faith alone, that they are righteous because of Christ's merits on their behalf, 10 through 14. Christ became a curse for us that we might receive the Spirit. So he's defended from their experience. He's now defended their experience as being a biblical experience. And now he's going to say, and your experience was brought about by Christ and his death on the cross. Paul continues in verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, end quote. So Paul now turns uh, more directly to the gospel, the good news, and kind of the two pathways that we can pursue righteousness or a, a good relationship with God. Uh, the two pathways are this, works of the law, your flesh, or by faith, by the Spirit of God. Those are kind of the two pathways. Verse 10, look at the, the word for. For again connects it to what comes before it. Verse 10 is connected to verses 6 through 9. You might be wondering if it's so connected to verse 6 and 9, why all of a sudden are we talking about curse? He was talking about blessings. Why, how can he now talk about curse as if it was right there in the midst of his argument that he just made? And again, this is because Paul is reading the Old Testament correctly. When he read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he probably would have made an observation something like this. It's interesting that God says, bless, blessed, bless, blessed, blessing five times to Abraham. And it's also interesting in the 11 preceding chapters of the Bible, curse is used five times. Moses makes the point in Genesis that all of that curse stuff that comes about through the sin of Adam is going to be reversed. It's going to be taken away in this promise made to Abraham. And so Paul's just reading his Bible, and now he's moving right into the same theme of curse from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so the pattern that Paul follows in verses 10 through 12 runs like this. Verse 10 he talks about the works of the law path. By works of the law, you can be righteous. This is what that path looks like. And he outlines it by using Deuteronomy 27, 26. In verse 11, 
he turns to the faith path. And he outlines that using Habakkuk 2, verse 4. In verse 12, he returns back to the law path by works of the law. And he uses Leviticus 18, verse 5. So that's kind of his outline of his argument here. In verse 10, Paul basically states to the Galatians that if you want to walk down the path of the flesh, the path of the works of the law, then just know what the law says about itself and about that path. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, and it says this, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written. I was kind of hoping Kave would be here this morning because he likes this evangelism strategy called the way of the master. And I wanted to give an analogy using way of the master. It's a kind of a cold evangelism strategy if you're just talking to perfect strangers that want to have a conversation. Uh, one of the things that they do is they just ask questions about the law, right? Have you ever lied? And a person might say, well, yeah, I've lied before. And then they go, well, what does that make you? A liar. Uh, have you ever had unrighteous anger in your heart towards your neighbor or a brother or someone else? Yeah, I've been angry at people for wrong reasons before. Oh, what does that make you? According to Jesus, that makes you a murderer. Have you ever lusted after someone? What does that make you? An adulterer. Have you ever coveted something that belonged to someone else? What does that make you? A coveter. And they go down this, this line of thinking. You kind of get the picture. And, the, and here's Paul's point. If you answer yes to any part of breaking the law, you're disqualified for righteousness. In fact, more than that, this is the law's words to you if you've broken it. You are cursed. That's the law's words to us who have broken it. You are cursed. And in verse 12, he quotes Leviticus 18.5 to just reemphasize that point. The one who does them, the commandments of the law, shall live by them. Meaning, if you don't do them, you won't live. And so Paul makes this very clear, right? He makes this very clear for them what the path of the law offers in regards to um, righteousness. Now, interesting enough, Jesus uses Leviticus 18.5 as well. And I found this to be helpful because sometimes people, can, at least me, I'm tempted to think, like, is, is Paul just kind of making this stuff up? Is this rooted in the teaching of Christ himself? Um, in in uh, Luke, Jesus uses this in Luke 10, 28. There's a lawyer who approaches him that says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what, you know, what's the, what's the commandments? And he says, well, you know, love God. He starts listing off some of the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, summarizing the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus turns to him and says, Leviticus 18, 5, do this and you will live. Now, what's interesting to me is the very next verse. But desiring to justify himself, he then asked Jesus another question. Who is my neighbor? Because anybody who has truly thought through the law and what it requires would have to justify themselves because the law ain't going to do it. The law says you are cursed. So Paul makes that path pretty clear, I think. In verse 11, he then shows another path. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we're starting to see a couple things here. Righteousness or justification is tied to life, is tied to blessing, is tied to receiving the Spirit. 
All of those things are linked together in this passage. All of these things are given freely to those who are trusting in Christ. But to go down the other path, righteousness, life, blessing, receiving the Spirit, Paul's point is you would have to obey it down to every single point. Or you would be declared unrighteous, a lawbreaker, dead in sin, cursed by God, void of the Spirit. So again, Paul's pretty clear here. But a further problem is developed. Uh, in a, a kind of objection. How does taking the path of faith free us from the law? Because, okay, I believe in Jesus, but how does that get me out from under the law? Because the law is still a thing. The law is the law. It's been given to us all, and we've broken the law. And so there's a need for more than just a positive status given to us. There's a need for a negative status to be taken from us. The law has to be dealt with and Christ deals with it. And so Paul shifts to one last Old Testament passage in verse 13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What do you mean Christ became a curse, Paul? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, say this, that a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And it's very specific. It's not just, oh, he's cursed. He's cursed by God. So if justification by faith is the article by which the church or by which we stand or fall, substitutionary atonement is the doctrine by which justification stands or falls. Let's run the logic again. A person is cursed. Jesus was hung on a tree indicating that he was cursed by God. Jesus obeyed the law fully. What's the disconnect? How is it that a man who obeyed the law is cursed by God if the law promises life to those who obey it? Well, the answer is Jesus became a curse not for himself, for someone else. Christ was cursed for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A curse for us can literally just be translated as a curse on behalf of us. Paul's including himself in that us. Christ suffers the penalty of the curse of God for those who disobey the law that we might be redeemed from the curse, purchased back from the curse. Timothy George summarizes this in three statements that I think are just good. Christ was cursed. Christ was cursed by God. Christ was cursed by God for us. That's the logic that Paul's using. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and what Paul puts forward as the thing that connects us to a right relationship with God. Jesus' death was for you and for I, not for himself. So to run that through, he takes your curse so that you can take his blessing. He takes your condemnation so you can take his justification, his righteousness. He takes your death so that you can take his life. He takes your forsakenness so that you can receive his spirit. Martin Luther says this of Galatians 3.13. He says this of Christ. You, Christ, are my sin and my curse, or rather, I am your sin, your curse, your death, your wrath of God, 
your hell. And contrarywise, you are my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, my heaven. Paul concludes verse 14 with two parallel synonymous so that statements. Two so that's, and they're both the same thing. They just use different words. Christ died so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And Christ died so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So if justification by faith is the article by which the church stands or falls, Jesus' death on the cross is the doctrine by which justification stands or falls, all of it flows to us from the person of Christ and our union with Jesus. Look again at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. Go back to last week's sermon. David, Pastor David ended with union with Christ from chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is singing the age-old song of union with Christ once again, over and back to justification by faith and its immediate relevance um, to your life. Believers, if you are heavy laden in light of disobedience and sin, which, which clings closer to you than your bones, you have a safe spot in Christ. Christ, by believing in Christ, by being united to Christ, that's declared gone. Dear unbeliever, do you want to know how to be right with God? What name by which I can be declared right with God? His name is Jesus Christ. He's the king of glory. He's the perfect law keeper. He's love incarnate. He's altogether desirable. He's beauty to be gazed at for all of eternity to never run out. He offers his hand to you, dear believer. Like the leper who says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus offers two things to us, words of affirmation and a personal touch. He says, I will be clean. And he reaches out and he touches us with his own hand. He clings to you, dear believer, who trusts in his name. Though your faith might be a smoldering wick or a broken reed, he holds you as his most valuable possession. He holds you in his hand and he brings you into the heart of his father, into the heart of our heavenly father. But before we stop there, look around again. Those things I just said of you, if you are in faith, God has said of all of us who are in faith. Your neighbor who is in faith is Christ's most valuable possession, declared righteous before God. If they have been redeemed and declared good enough for God, then they are also good enough for us. If you would have God treat you based on the merits of Christ and not your own, can we not also learn to reach out and treat others based on the merits of Christ and not their own? A Matthew 18 culture depends upon this. If we want to be a culture that is able to call out sin and also to extend forgiveness, we have to be rooted in our status comes from Christ, not from our sin. Because then when someone calls out sin, 
They're not calling me out. They're calling my sin out, and I want to kill my sin. My righteousness, my status is Jesus himself. And where he is, there we also are. So if remedy is to be a place of blessing, a place of righteousness, a place of life, a place of the spirit, if remedy is to grow, we must walk by faith toward God and toward one another. We must come to the arms of Christ, receive the substitutionary atoning blood of Christ, and walk before knowing that we are counted right before God by faith alone. Here we must stand, we can do no other. Let's pray. Father, um, we are so thankful. Uh, I tried my best to, to bring clarity to something that is the greatest treasure, greatest eternal worth in all that is, and that's Christ. Um, my efforts, my strength bring about nothing, so we just pray that your spirit would be amongst us, would be working powerfully amongst us by the message of faith by the gospel, that you would be delighted to reveal more of your glory to us in the face of Jesus. And Lord, as that happens, as we continue to grow into Christ, we would also continue to grow into one another, that we would, as our union with Christ becomes more pronounced, our union with one another as brothers and sisters would also be more pronounced. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.